Welcome to another episode of the Man City Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Pollard. On this edition, I'm talking to one of this club's most unique and revered figures, Francis Lee. Over it goes for Bell. And Lee! What a magnificent goal by Francis Lee! Francis is considered one of the best players we've ever had. He sits seventh on the list of all-time leading goal scorers. He won every domestic trophy and was part of the side that won our only European honour today, the 1970 European Cup Winners' Cup. He then returned in 1994 as chairman, taking over from Peter Swales for what was a difficult and turbulent period. Francis invited me to his house in Portugal and we had a full and frank discussion about his association with the club. It was the best period of your career, your playing career, when you were at City. Joe Mercer paid a club record £60,000. Tell me about what it was like when, when you got the phone call to say that City were interested and that Joe Mercer was interested in taking you as a player. He rang me up two days before and said, I'm, tr- I'm going to try and sign him. <laughs> he said, are you, are you OK are you for coming? You know, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine because I'd, I'd finished my contract with Bolton. I was, I was playing on a week-to-week basis with him, even though I was the leading goal scorer. It's early in the year, I had about 12 goals by the end of September. Uh, so I said, uh, no, I'm in dispute for, with them and uh, no doubt they will be selling me to somebody. Uh, so he, he then rang me back in another two days and, and uh, he said to the Bolton um, manager, Bill Ridding, uh, uh, will you accept £60,000? He said, well, I suppose so. The next thing was my debut against Wolverhampton. And I hadn't played for about two, three weeks. I was training on my own and... Uh, but uh, I, I didn't really bother, you know, I, I kept myself reasonably fit. And we played and we won 2-0 at Main Road. And and I knew straight away, I thought, these are not bad players. They're easy to slot in with, you know. I, I always felt that if I, if I was playing with good players, I could, I could fit in with them, uh, you know, easily, you know. Joe Mercer described you as the final piece of the jigsaw. I mean, I think he sees your transfer as, as kind of, you know, that that final catalyst to yeah. success. Is, well, is that how you see it? They played me wide uh, on, on, on the wing because it didn't really bother me. I could play I could play right wing, left wing. I could play centre forward. I could play support striker. I, did, I, wouldn't, I was never really a deep line um, midfield player. I was more, I always wanted him in the, in the action. So it didn't really matter to me, I, uh, you know, which, which position I played, I could enjoy it, you know. What was he like as a... As a man and as a manager, Joe Mercer. I mean, he'd got City promoted, hadn't he, in, in '66, and then to win the league by '68. Well, 68. yeah, but I think that you have to take Joe ran the club from a managerial point of view, but the coaching side of it was done by Malcolm Allison, who was like the Pep Guardiola of his, his era. Yeah. Uh, we when I first went there, uh, the training was unbelievably hard. You know, we, we had international runners. Uh, Derek Hibbertson and Joel Lancaster and Danny Ehrman, trainers on the track for one for distance running, one for track work, you know, the 200 metres and 100 metres and then for the sharp stuff, Danny Ehrman was a, a sprinter for Great Britain and we trained really, really hard, plus weights on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, and uh, we were a very, very fit side and that's, that, that's what really made us, apart from being good footballers, because we had some good, very, very good footballers in the team. We were very fit and very strong. If you look at your record, when City needed you on the big days, you, you were always there to deliver. What, what do you think that is about your mentality? I wanted to be a star. I wanted to be on the day. I wanted to make sure that everybody remembered uh, me playing that day. Because it was important. 
that cup winners cup as well. He's City's only European cup. What's your memories of that night and the and the journey home and that kind of thing? I can't remember much of the journey, the journey home, <laughs> uh, but uh, the match was uh, it was played in torrential rain, but it was a good game and it was a, it was a fast game and they, they put the uh, Polish team were a very good team as well. We played them again the year after and got to the semi-final of the European Cup Winners' Cup and then we got knocked out with Chelsea because we got no players. We had so many people injured. We we actually had got a good result at Stamford Bridge and then lost uh, uh, the match at Main Road, but we there's only about three or four of those regulars in the team, you know. But no, that, that was a good game against a good team and we were the best team on the day. And... Uh, if you go back and think about the the great German manager Elmut Schoen, he saw us absolutely annihilate Schalke, or four in Germany and at Main Road, and he said that's one of the best British sides I've ever seen. He said they're, they're, they're unbelievable, and that's how good City were then. You know, were you um, top scorer every season that you were at City? I think so. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, the thing is, I played uh, through playing out of position. I, 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 I curtailed my scoring activities because I was playing centre forward. I was playing my, with my back to the operation, uh, uh, the, uh, the the team, uh, and everything was played into me. I held, I held it up and laid it off and, and worked it from there. Whereas if I played my favourite position, which was alongside a support striker like I did with Jeffers for England, and I did for Win Davis when he was at Bolton. We bought Win Davis, and that season I think I scored 36 goals, playing off Win. So if I'd have played off him, off a big striker for most of my career, uh, I would have scored a, a lot more goals. But I might not have created as many. My real, my real position was a support striker, and I could because I could play, I could play wide on either wing. I could move off the striker and play on the left wing and move on the right wing. You know. So given that then, if you were to compare your style and, and, and the way that you played to a, a player who's played for City in, the, in sort of recent years, who, who do you think was, uh, who was most like you? I, I think if you're looking at the current players, you'd think some, uh, somewhere across between, say, like Sergio or... Uh, Carlos Tevez. Carlos Tevez, yeah. yeah. Carlos Tevez. You ended up leaving City in 74. Um, how did that come about? Did you want to leave? Well, my, my contract was it was uh, about to expire, and uh, they made Tony Tony Book the manager, and he wanted to buy A's at Hartford from West Brom, and I think it was about two hundred grand or something like that, you know. And as usual, City had got no money. They had no money when I came, and they had no money when I went, you know. But uh, um, they uh, they said that. Uh, if they wanted to, uh, sorry, they wanted to sign A's, they had to sell a player. So I was the obvious one because I'm out of contract and they probably didn't want to give me a, a new contract of two, three years, something like that. So uh, I knew that United wanted to sign me and one or two other clubs. So uh, then all of a sudden, Dave Mackay, he came on the phone to me and said, uh, I'd like you to come and play. He explained why and he said, I think you've... We can get the team playing away from home. We finished six in the league last year. We will win the. We could win the championship. I thought that's a bit of a long shot that day. He said, "No, it's not." He said, "If we can get them playing away from home, he said, uh, it, we, we could win it." And so I signed for Derby, and uh, we did win the championship. So who was the best player you played with? And I don't necessarily mean a City player, just England, Derby, Bolton, City, wherever. Who was the, who was I've, the best? I've been lucky to play with a lot of good players. You know, I mean, say if you played with the likes of Bobby Moore and Bobby Charlton for England, they were they were top class. They were proper international players. They were, uh, you know, if you play 
first division football or Premier League football, if you want to be a top-class international, you've got to raise your game by about 25%. And Bobby Charlton and Bobby uh, uh, Moore could do that. Plus, you know, obviously Banksy, the goalkeeper, he was very good. But in club level, I was lucky to play with, uh, like, Micah City. Was, he was tremendously consistent mm. and aggressive and talkative. Yeah. <laughs> and Colin was a, a very, very good player. Neil Young was an underrated player. Not the he, he wouldn't he wouldn't the guy who, if it, if, you, if it was like the retreat from Alamo you wouldn't have Young in his side you know but he, but he finished with some wonderful goals and Tony Coleman on the, on the left wing he was just a, he's just a little little nuisance but could play as well. Just going back to Bobby Moore, a lot of people who talk about Bobby Moore they they kind of make the point that he never ever had to make sort of last ditch sliding tackles. Um, that's because he read, read the game so well, yeah. presumably. I mean, is that what makes a great centre half? Yeah, ability? good players, good defenders, right? Like like good strikers, they attract the ball. And Moro used to attract the ball he, in the penalty area. Somehow, he'd always used to go to him, and he'd be the one who was clearing it. And, like that. and it could be a muddy day, and he'd be the only one with white shorts on, and that type of thing, you know. So when you do come back after your, your long period away, you come back in 94 as the chairman. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was training, I'd been training racehorses for about 10 years and, and I had a lot of fun doing that and yeah. I enjoyed it. And I should have stayed training racehorses. They were less trouble than footballers. You know? At least the, the horses didn't answer your back. Yeah. So what, what made you want to come back? What made you I want just to thought it, was a, it, it had got to the state where uh, it, a lot of people had been pestering me and pestering me and pestering me and it got to the stage where I thought it was possible. You know, and I thought there's a lot of fans out there. You know, there's a big, and we have got a big fan base, but it's a local big fan base. And uh, you know, and when we came back, we did a lot of uh, promotion of the club, and we we had to build the Kipak Street stand because the, the, we couldn't go into the otherwise that would that side of the ground would have to be shut down until a stand was built. And the, the previous directors, uh, led by Mr. Swells, had just built the Platt Lane stand. Well, they'd half built it because they got a grant to build a full one, but they only half built it. They, only, they didn't build it full size. And uh, Is that because they couldn't afford to? Yeah, and w- when I went there, when, uh, when after the takeover, all I did for the first six months was pay people who'd never been paid, contractors for that stand and things like that. But anyway, we had to we had to get cracking on the uh, the Kipak Street stand, which we built, and it cost sixteen million. And bear in mind that the last published figures for the turnover of the club uh, before I went there as chairman was four million. When I left, the turnover of the club was thirty three million, and we built a sixteen million pound stand. But we had a break; we had a bit of luck. I was at the Premier League meeting with John John Hall, Sir John Hall from. Uh, Newcastle and he said I think you're in for a good surprise I said what's that he said Manchester have been trying to get the Olympic Games and share it with Liverpool and he said it's not going to work and nothing like that and he said but you are going to get the Commonwealth Games he said and I've heard on on the strong advice, strong uh, information that uh, Manchester City will be asked to play in the Commonwealth Stadium he said, but you'll have to give up your, your ground at Main Road eventually. I said, that, that won't be a problem. Uh, but it was a problem because a lot of people didn't want to leave Main Road because uh, everybody had got their own little cubby all here and they, they always stood there and they did that. But anyway, I went around to several of these supporters' clubs and 
and said on the show of hands, well, one of the questions he asked on the show of hands, can he t if anybody is in favour of us having a better stadium than Manchester United, can put your hands up now. So everybody put their hands up. So I thought, unanimous, thank you very much. You know, So uh, the, the fans were for it. Uh, and so it, it, it lumbered on for another two or three years and then eventually it, they started to build it and it's proved to be an absolute fantastic success. To get a ground like that for 30 million, we, we sold Main Road for 30 million. And how we got 30 million for Main Road was, I don't know, but it, was, it wasn't a bad bit of business because it was only an housing site after all. You did inherit a bit of a mess at City, didn't you? Certainly off the field. Oh, contracts, yeah. long contracts, people unpaid, players on stupid money, on stupid lengths. How did you go about sifting through all that rubbish? Well, it, was so, it was so difficult, but, but the, the, the players were in impregnable uh, positions because they just signed uh, before I came. They just signed, most of them had signed new contracts, you know, and so, so then they were happy, you know, to just, just roll along merrily, you know. And it was it was everything which was put in my path made things difficult. But every day there was a crisis. But every day we kept overtaking this crisis, and we kept, you know, uh, kept putting that away and sorting that out. And sorting that. and it happened for about three or four years. And in the end, uh, I'd say, well, I just got completely fed up of everything, you know, because it just got me down. I thought I was pretty resilient, but after three years of total aggravation, then it really got me down and. I can imagine it was a hugely stressful time, not cool, just for yeah. you, but for your family yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was difficult for my kids at school and everything like that, you know, but anyway, I'm still here. So you inherited, um, Brian Horton was the manager at the time, he wasn't yeah. necessarily your man, but um, things did quite well at first. I mean, when you came in, City had been struggling a little bit, but Brian managed to steer the team to safety and there was a couple of big important transfers in there, Paul Walsh, Rosler, yeah. Bigri came yeah. in. What are your memories? They made a real impact, didn't they, those, yeah. those signings? Yeah, we signed, we signed Walsh. He was a hell of a signing, you know. I, and Mike Summerby can take some of the credit for that because he'd been to Liverpool and he saw Graham Souness, who was the manager of Liverpool. And Portsmouth had just been Liverpool at Liverpool and he was chatting to Graham after the game and he said... Uh, and Graham said to him, do you know, if it, if it wasn't for the protocol here at Liverpool, he said, he said because Walsh used to play for Liverpool, he said, I'll, I would try and sign Walsh to bring him back. Mike told me, and so we made our inquiries, yeah, he was available, so that's how we signed him. And uh, we signed, we went, tried to sign Anders Limper, which we, we oh, yeah, that was a wonderful miss, you know. Sometimes, you know, I, when I met him, I didn't like the little... Chap, you know, <laughs> his eyes, and, and I said to Brian afterwards, he said, "What do you think?" Because we were talking about, yeah. I said his agent kept pushing to see how much we were going to pay him and everything like that. I said, "But really, Brian?" I said, "I don't think he's coming here." Yeah, I said, "He think he's he's just been here to test the water to see how much he can, can get. He's going somewhere else." So I got uh, Dom, my driver, my driver, you know, to follow him when he left the Stylands Hotel. We'd been having these chats, and he followed him. He followed him to Liverpool, and he, he went. They, were, they went to see Everton. So that's why we lost him. So Brian straight away said, "If, they, if we, we can't have Limpa, see if we can get Beagery." So that's how we got Peter Beagery. Mm -hmm. So uh, Peter Beagery was a very good player for us. 
he wasn't, he wasn't too good on the far side when we knocked the kipaks down. There were no fans down that side. But on the on kicking the other way, he was fantastic. Yeah, very exciting player to watch. Rosler as well. He was a bit Rosler. of an unknown player, but he came and hit the ground running, started scoring. He goals. came and we watched. We played him in a reserve match. We got permission. Uh, uh, one of the um, uh, agents who was very good and he helped us out quite a bit was Jerome Anderson, who, who did a lot of work with Arsenal. You know, bought some of the Arsenal players in. Uh, he he put us in touch with him, uh, and he came over and he played in the reserve team, and he played till half time. And Brian says, "What do you think?" I said, "Well, he's had the ball 22 times in the first half, and I said he's misplaced passes twice. He stuck two in the net, and the rest he passed it to a blue shirt. He's better than anything we got. We'll sign him. Yeah. So we signed him." And then Brian put him in the team to play at QPR on the, on, the, on the Saturday. And he played really well. And then he was up and running after that. Mm. He, he did have a, an injury when he came, but he, he got over it. And, and eventually he did super for us, yeah. Then so City stay up that season and the following season starts really well. I mean, there's some great football being played. Yeah. But the squad's a little on the small side. And, you know, I, I spoke to Brian Horton about this. And he, he basically feels that if he'd had a few more options, particularly in defence... And just a slightly bigger squad, maybe City could have maintained it over the full season. But the the wheels sort of came off halfway through that season, didn't they? Well, the problem was with the defence that Tony Colton was struggling with a knee injury, and he because he was a very, very, very good goalkeeper, he got knee and shoulder problems, you know. And it, out the, old, the the number of games he should have played whilst I was there, he should have played about 120 games. He played about 20, you know. Yeah. Again, which was bad luck. They brought the back, they brought the the, the back pass rule in with the goal is had to had to kick it, you know. Um, uh, while Sandy Dibble wasn't a bad goalkeeper, he was a shocking kicker. <laughs> he, yeah, he was, I remember one day at Newcastle, we, oh, we'd done so well, and we were we were just one in front or something like that, you know, and only 10 minutes ago, and he completely missed his kick, and somebody just walked it into the net, and I thought, oh. But that was that was the problem we got, you know. And then he bought, I think he bought a season, did he not buy Nicky Summerby? Yeah, Nicky Summerby. He bought yeah. Nicky, that's a, which is a good buy. Uh, and I think he bought one or two others. Good width, good width in the team, and yeah. an, an attacking team. It was what it was. And good, good cross. Both wingers were good crosses, yeah. you know. Because uh, uh, the trouble was now, now Quinn was always injured because he had a, he had a cruciate knee, uh, knee injury, and I think he came back uh, about the end of that season. Did we go to Blackburn and get a good result there? We did. We beat Blackburn. That was it, and I think it, it was about the fourth or fifth games that, that now Quinn came back yeah. and. Uh, uh, I remember old Jack Walker, the chairman of Blackburn, because they were going to win the league and everything like that. You know, he said to me, eh, "Francis, do you want do you want to have a bet now?" <laughs> I said, "No." I said, "I've got more brains than that." I said, "You're going to win the league championship, you know, the Premier League." I said, "And we are just happy to be where we are." Um, but then we we beat them, and it was quite uh, it, 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 it was quite it was a good night. That, that was a fantastic night, yeah. And then in the summer, the, the change of manager happens. Brian leaves um, and Alan Ball comes in. And obviously, he kind of oversees a real period of decline, uh, Alan Ball. Looking back, and, and the accusation was that he was just a friend of yours and that you would, you'd taken him on as like an old pals act. What's well, the first story? And, What's first the story? and foremost, there was no old, old pals act between Ball and myself, apart from when we played for England, we were mates and pals and everything like that. But on the football field, we sort of dislike people, dislike one another. Yeah. 
you know, and we'd always been the same. And, and when we played cricket in the Bolton League together, we were always sort of hated one another's guts. And try, I used to try and bowl, knock his head off when I was bowling at him and things like that. It was like it was very, very highly, highly competitive. The problem was this: that at the end of the season, we had a, a dinner at the uh, Middle of Hotel, which we'd had two years before, which to bring everybody together, happy, happy and wise, you know, and. Uh, it was called An Evening with the Blues. And Brian couldn't attend it because he was down at the league, league manager's meeting down at uh, Lillishall. One of the mates of one of the directors at Manchester City, who was a horrible sod, right, told Malcolm Allison that there's a chance that Brian Orton will get sacked this summer. And this was totally wrong because we were quite happy to go along. We uh, we weren't we hadn't got a board meeting plan for about six weeks, six weeks, and Malcolm he told Malcolm this, and Malcolm at that time was struggling a bit, you know. He sold the story to the Sun for three thousand pounds. So it's in the Sun and followed by the other red tops uh, that Brian Orton's going to get sacked. So he rang me up from the little show, effing and jeffing and everything, and he was annoyed. And okay, well, fair enough, he should be, but it's nothing to do with me. It's the, and it's nothing to do with anybody from the, uh, uh, on the board apart from this one sleaze bag who everybody will, will know who I'm talking about. But still, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So he rings me up, effing and jeffing and everything like that. He said, "I want to see you." So, so I said, "Okay then." So I said, "What do you want to see me about?" He said, "I've had enough." He said, all these rumours about me being fired and boom, 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 boom. I want it, come, I want it all sorted out. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah. I said, OK, I'll see you at my house because he's only come from Lillishaw to Wilmslow. I'll see you at my house in an hour. So I rung up the board. I, t- I, I explained everything to him and they just said, well, if that's his attitude, let him go. So he came and he, he sat down and said, he said, what's the situation? I said, well, the situation is, Brian, I've, I spoke to all the directors. And the unanimous would say, you can go, you can leave. And the, the, leave, give, give, you, you give us your address of your, uh, your lawyer and everything like that and letting the sorts and compensation out. And that's it, and thanks very much. I couldn't do anything else about climb down and say, give him a kiss and say, please, Brian, don't leave, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just... Yeah, uh, and the, the, all, it all started by that sleaze bag. At the evening for the Blues. Leaking, leaking the story. So there, there was no intention on your part then to actually get rid of Brian Orton? You no, no. You doing because, a decent job. Because what, what we'd have done, we'd have called a meeting as soon as, soon as the season finished, right, and done it then, uh, within a week, and, and, and it's done. We've got the summer to, to, <clears throat> to actually get a new manager. So anyway, the next problem arrives by another famous man in Manchester who applies for the manager's job. Who's that? I can't tell you, because uh, it's... Uh, I, I, I wouldn't tell you. Uh, I can't tell you. I'm sorry. And so he kept me on the hook for about three or four weeks. And so we're now moving into June, early June. And he's, he was a big friend of Colin Barlow's. And I said to Colin, what's, what's going on? So he said he came back and he said, uh, I can't do it. I can't tell the chairman I'm going to leave, you know. And everything like that. And I said, well, you can't. He said, no. Oh, I said, why did you not tell me this four weeks ago? Well, he said, I've been having a lot of sleepless, uh, sleepless nights and this, that and the other. He said, 
I, I can't. I really can't. So I'm now in. I'm now in the deepest mire I've ever been in. I rung up Bowley, and I said because he just had a good season. I think Southampton finished sixth, and was like. Oh. I got a friend of mine to speak to Matt Letizia to ask him how was Bowley doing. and everything like that. Matt Letizia was full of. He said he's very very good, you know, and so. But, I did as much inquiry then so I rang Bowley and he said I'm just off to Ascot you know I said well just have a think about this one before you get down there and drink some champagne and ring me back to say if you're interested with and he, he I knew what he was on at, at Southampton he was getting very small wages you know so I said have a think about it and uh, I'll uh, you know ring me back but don't leave it longer than a day or so so he came back he said I'll come and see you. he said I could be interested I think he'd had a word with Leslie, his wife, who was from the north, you know, from Farmworth, near Bolton. And so that's how it, it came about, that uh, Alan came. He helped me out of, of, of deep hole, yeah. right? And uh, if you ask Matt Letizia today, you can ring him up, and any of the City fans can ring him up. Uh, they can ask him when he's on TV, who's the best manager he's ever played for. Matt Letizia will say, Alan Ball. Now, why can he be the best manager that, Al, that Matt Letizia's ever played for, and yet he got so many of the older end of the uh, uh, players at Manchester City who couldn't stand him? Why was that? What was wrong? What went wrong? Because it clearly did go wrong under Ball, didn't it? That was, that was kind of the, um, well, because the start he, of the real he would not He would not be buggered about by people who wanted to please themselves. There was a, there was a, there was a, an hardcore of three or four or five players who thought they ran the club and owned the club. Yeah. And so he rowed with them, and I, and I pleaded with him. I said, Alan, however you however much they they rub you up the wrong way or anything like that, just bide your time. Don't say a word to them or anything like that, or, or pacify them or anything like that. And I said, the only time you criticise any of them is when they've left. So he said, all right, you know. And then he started to do all right, and then he, he, he got very, very critical of them. And he said, they're all multimillionaires. He said, I can't make an impression on them, you know. Mm. And I think he got fed up of them. And I think it was a standoff by both sides, which eventually finished up, where, you know, that I had to sack him. He got off to an awful start and never recovered. Really, was the, was the was yeah. The but way then he had a out. decent run. He came, he came. He did have a decent run, but it was a bit too late, wasn't it? Yeah. So City go down on the last day of the season. Yeah. That famous Liverpool game, the two all. We went to the all. The, I asked all the team to go to the social club on that Sunday morning afterwards. You know, right? So we all went, and they were, all the first team players turned up and everything like that. And I heard one senior player say to the other senior player, right. Come on, we better go and see these sub. That's the fans. And I thought, there's something wrong badly at this club. And when you think what Alan Ball had to put up with from them, and you hear a senior player say to another player that, you know that he's had problems with them. Because even half decent people don't say things like that. So how, how did that culture come about, do you think? Was it just a collection of the wrong players being signed? Collection of wrong players being, being given bigger contracts for doing nothing. Yeah. Which which happened just before I came. That was Peter Swells' way of punishing me, leaving players on big contracts, and then you had yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Alan Ball lasts until um, August of the '96, and and City haven't started particularly well. 
Um, Asa Hartford takes over for a short period as caretaker, and then Steve Koppel comes in. Now, I remember Franny, even as a kid, I was only 12, 13 at this time, I remember thinking, finally, after you know, a turbulent little period, he's the man because his record was good. He seemed like, um, you know, a bit of a forward-thinking manager and I thought, I thought he was the right appointment. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I interviewed him for the job and he, we talked about everything and he said, yeah, and everything was in the garden good. He had very, very good contract. We always paid, we paid our players well and we, we play, paid our managers well. And uh, uh, everything was going fine and uh, all of a sudden... I got a phone call, uh, and it was late at night, and he said, oh, it's Steve here. I said, yeah, he said, what's up with you? I don't feel too good. I said, well, well get yourself to the doctor's then. You know, and, and then the conversation went on like that. No, he said, I think I'd better come up and see you. I said, well, I'll see you tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock. So he came up, and he came to my house, and he, he was shaking and gibberish, and I said, what's wrong with you? I thought he'd been, had something, you know. I can't face it. I said, you can't face what? He said, this job. I said, you've only been here four weeks. What's wrong with you? Well, he said, it's, it's, just, not, it's just not for me. Yeah. Oh, and this was went on and everything like that. And anyway, we eventually had to call a press conference and tell, him, tell everybody that he was leaving. And I, I didn't know what to say. I honestly didn't know what to say because here he is with a new contract, everything like that, you know. And I just said to him, I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll go down the ground. We'll do the press conference. I'll get Don, my driver, to run you to wherever you go. But wherever you go, you tell me where you're going because I was frightened. Yeah. I was frightened he was going to do something to himself, you know, because he was in tears. He was shaking. He was... He was... So, anyway... He was, on the, he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Basically, it's, it's certainly nothing could have happened at our club because I'll tell you what, we never saw him. Yeah, he only came up on a Monday morning and stayed till Thursday, then left the rest of them to Steve Copland, then met him at wherever they were playing. But there was some rumor about his marriage or something like that, and you know, why was that? Just go back to that. Why, why was he only there that short? Had you come to an arrangement with him that for the initial period he could do a, he could he could manage from distance? And no, no, I'd come to an agreement to say, to, to, to say, well, you know, if you want, if you want to look for houses, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, well, you're, all you can, you know, and just providing you get you prepare the team right, and you know, that, that's all you need to do. I didn't want to be put him under any pressure whatsoever. Yeah, and. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. So eventually, when we do the press conference, everybody criticises me for destroying his, his image and his, his well-being and his, <laughs> his personality and everything like that. So he said he was leaving and he said, uh, I'm, he said I'll go abroad. I said, where are you going? He said, I might go and see a friend of mine in Manhattan. And I'm thinking, oh, no, if he jumps off that bloody bridge there, there's going to be hell to blame. Yeah. <laughs> I was afraid. So I said to Don... Don, drive him, take him wherever he wants. So he, he went and then we had the rest of the day and everything like that, trying to get over this and one thing and another. So uh, I got a call from Don at five o'clock. I said, uh, he said, where did he go? You know, did he go to Heathrow or something like that? Or, you know, Gatwick? No, he said he went to his mother's in witness. I said, what? He says he's gone to his mother's in witness. Oh, can you understand how, how <laughs> as a normal, intelligent man I have to put up with this nonsense? Yeah. I've got a letter from him, really, 
because I said I'll find, I'll I'll pay you some compensation for what you've done and everything like that. And he wrote me he wrote me a very nice letter for looking after him. He said be very nice to him. he said you don't have to send me any compensation at all because he knew he hadn't he hadn't been able to deliver on the job. In this, well, I don't know what is wrong with him. Nobody ever knows whether he got problems off the field. I don't know. Anyway, in the spring, I'm playing in the PFA golf tournament down at uh, in South Wales. Who goes marching by on the on the at the fairway about fifty yards from me? You know, with his golf cup and his, and his bag and his bag and waving. Hi, Franny. I thought, who's that? And somebody's with me. Say, Steve Coppel. Oh, I said, for God's sake, let's miss him. Out. <laughs> He actually managed uh, only six games. Now, Asa Hartford, who, who had been the caretaker just before him, did eight. So that's how short his stint was. And it really was a shocker when... I, I still remember it to this day when, when, when you know, the, the, I remember the press conference that you're talking about. You're telling me it's a shocker? Yeah. You ask... You, how do you think I felt? How do you think I felt? Because everybody's saying what a wonderful appointment Steve Coppel is and this, that and the other. And then all of a sudden it turns out to be the... Do you wonder I didn't jump off? I didn't jump off the bridge in Manhattan. <laughs> then Frank, uh, well, Phil Neal did a little caretaker yeah, Frank spot. Frank Clark came. Then Frank Clark. Frank Clark came over the Christmas period because we met. We met him at. Uh, I went to Barbados for Christmas, and I met him with David Bernstein at uh, a hotel at Heathrow Friday night before I went. I flew out, and he uh, he we offered him the job. And he said, well, I'll let you know within three or four days. Yeah. And so he took the job. And that's how Frank became the manager. What was appealing about Frank Clark? Because I can't find many things that were appealing about Frank Clark. What, 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 what kind of stood out to you and thought he's, he could be the man for the job? Uh, uh, well, uh, two or three people recommended him to me. And then I thought, well, he's got Alan Hill with him, who was Cluffy's left-hand man or right-hand man. Call him what you want. Well, Peter Taylor was his right-hand man, his left-hand man. But he, Cluffy, he was with Cluffy, you know. And he was, he was a good, good guy, Alan Hill. He used to come down to my house and give me a report every two or three days, you know. Uh, Frank Clark, although he only lived 400 yards from me, never came to my house to see me or anything like that. We invited him for dinner just to chat about things and how was the training going? Or, you know, what, any, is there anything you know you can get through which you can't, don't have time uh, to do in the daytime? Why do you think that is? Alan said to me, he said, he won't come. He said, because he thinks you will know a lot more about football than him. He said, and that's why he won't come. So that's not a great place for the manager to be in, is it really? Thinking, no. thinking in that way. No, anyway... We start off the next season, so we sign one or two players and everything like that. I've got, I've got to ask you about the classic signing of this period was Lee Bradbury, who famously went down as um, one of the worst signings in the club history. I was down in Portugal and I, uh, and I was renting this house for about three weeks break and everything like that and then Frank rings me up. Chairman, we've got, uh, we've got uh, a, a player we'd like to sign. Oh, I said, oh, good, you know. I said, uh, who is it? He said, Lee Bradbury from Portsmouth. And I had heard about him. You know, he had scored a few goals, you know. Oh, I said, oh, yeah. I said, he said, well, we think we should buy him. You know, I said, how much is he? He said, uh, three million. I said, he must be pretty good. You know, because in those days, three million was quite, yeah. you know. He said, yeah, he is. I said, now, has everybody seen him? Is everybody happy? You know, the scouts and everything like that, and you, the reports, it does everything stack up? Yeah, he said, me and Richard, that was Richard Money, who was name, uh, think that he could be the next Alan Shearer. 
I thought, that sounds good. You know, I said, I haven't seen him. I don't know. He said, yeah, he's seen him, you know, and the scout down there had seen him and the old glowing reports. And so I said, uh, okay, then. I said, well, uh, I, to ask them. So he came back and he said, they need another 250,000. I said, what's that for? He said, well, when he's played 25 games, we'll have to pay another 250,000. I said, what, what's that for? And I, th- I found out it was... Um, a payment to somebody who was working at the club at Portsmouth. <laughs> so I said, provided it's legitimate and it's above board, I said, we'll do it. He said, yeah, it is, yeah. I said, okay, then, right, we'll do that. So we, the, so we sign him. So I go to, we, he trains and it was like that. I go and watch him training. And then I didn't go to training very much, but then I went to, we had a match at Burnley. A pre-season thought, game. Right, a pre-season game. I thought, right, I'm going to play the game for him, i.e. I'm going to put myself inside his shirt and do exactly what I would do wherever the ball is on the pitch and think what would him. So <laughs> he actually scored two. One was a bad back pass and something else which, which is innocuous, you know. And so uh, we won 3-2, I think 3-1, something like that. So I got home and I walked in and Jill said to me, uh, good result. I said, no, no. I said, it wasn't. I said, we, it sounds like a good result. I said, it wasn't. I said, we, we didn't play that well, you know. So I went and sat in the lounge and everything like that. And I'm, I got the soaks on me, which is very unusual for me, you know. And he, she said, uh, come on, what's up? She said, how did the new signing go? I said, honestly, look, I said, I can't see him being a good player. I said, he never set foot inside the six-yard box all, na- all day, and we put plenty of pressure on. His positional player, player is dire. I said, he doesn't know how to get the ball, you know. And I said, he's running around. And he, I said, I don't see anything. <laughs> so she said, oh, have another glass of red wine. It might do you good. <laughs> so anyway, I wasn't wrong because I... We, we about four or five, six weeks later, we drew Blackpool in the League Cup at Main Road, and it became it became a penalty shootout. Mm. And who's to take the winning penalty for City? But Lee Bradbury, and he skied it straight over the crossbar into the Platlaid stand. And I thought, well, that is it now. Uh, yeah, you, but it's three and a half million pounds. Significant amount of money. How many goals did he score when he when he's left us? Not very many, because he couldn't have gone upwards. He definitely gone downwards. And you know, then you you start to think to yourself, it's this is getting beyond a joke. You got aggravation from players. You got aggravation from managers. You got aggravation from spending people spending money on people who are just not worth it. And it. it in the end, it just got me down, and I thought, the sooner I get out of this, the better it is, because th- there's no end to all this torture. But your last appointment, your last managerial appointment, because obviously Frank Clark goes, because things don't work out again, your last appointment is Joe Royal. Mm. Now, you and Joe don't work together for a long time, because obviously you leave, but that was a good appointment, because Joe Royal was the right man at the right time, and City went on um, to do some good things under Joe Royal, and he yeah, kind of helped restore the club. Joe, Joe, and Willie Donaghy. Willie Donaghy, who everyone says is a great Great coach. old servant of the club, came, right? And we'd have taken Joe and Willie five years earlier if they'd been available, yeah. but they, they worked as a team, as, as a two, you know, and they, they could have always had the job. But 
the thing is that they took over and they brought in a certain way of playing. It was a bit root one-ish, but he believed in big players and crossing the ball and getting headers in and challenging and pressurising and everything like that. And, and it worked for him and well done, Joe. Most people, most City fans see the signing of King Cladsey as one of the one of the best, yeah. certainly of your era. Now, you were the one who actually spotted him, weren't you? If I yeah. remember rightly, he played in a game against Wales and lobbed yeah. Neville Southall and you'd seen this. Yeah, and, and I, I spoke to Jerome Anderson about it. I said, get me the, the, the video of it. Yeah. It was the worst video he'd ever seen. It was crackling and everything like that. But you could see the guy was brilliant. Yeah. And I sent Jimmy's, uh, uh, Jimmy Frizzell down to, to watch him. And he came back, he said, he is some player. He said, if you, if you got the orchestra, this guy could conduct it. And so we bought him for a million pounds. And he was a very, very, very talented player. You know? Unbelievably so, yeah. yeah. Maybe he came at the wrong time. Maybe he was playing with the wrong players. But you can't blame him for everything that went wrong. No, absolutely not. Because I mean. uh, let me tell you this as well. Two years later, Jim Smith is in trouble at Derby and he's, he said, I've got a chance of signing Georgie King Clads. He rung me up. He said, Franny, shall I do it? He said, because we, we, we could go down. If we, you know. He said, what shall I do? I said, sign him, Jim. I said, because he will win your games you can't win. He'll get you a point when all is lost. I said, that's the type of player. Just play 4-4-1 four, four, and let him go anywhere he wants and give him plenty of encouragement and get the rest of the team to play with him and he'll, he'll save you. And he did. I mean, as a fan at the time, I remember thinking he's the only thing worth watching some yeah. weeks. Some weeks where, where there was, you know, the playing staff was yeah. so poor that he was, he made it worth going. Yeah. All I would say is that speaking to, I mean, I spoke to Paul Walsh recently yeah. uh, about King Cladsey and I spoke to Joe Rowe recently about King Cladsey and both of them say the same thing in the sense that he wasn't the right player at that time. Now, obviously, he came in as a Premier in a, when City were a Premier League team. Yeah, so but, that's different. Uh, but, but full marks to Joe because Joe said to me, "He's a circus act," yeah. and he's uh, but Joe had his way of playing football, and I've got my way of seeing football. I see my way the uh, of playing football the way that City play today. Yeah, I see it skill, skill, ability, speed. That's how I, how I, I see it. I don't see big men running up and down, umping the ball and knocking seven bells out of one another, you know. I, I, and, and granted, Joe was right in doing what he did. But in the, in the great area of football, I believe football should be played by footballers. And City, the managers should have found a way of getting King Cladsey in there that it wasn't detrimental well, to the Clark overall team. Frank Clark and Richard Money said, we, we'd like to have a word with you. And I thought, Frank wants to speak to me. What's this? So I said, yeah, what do you want, Frank? He said, uh, Richard and I... And he'd been there seven months, seven or eight months, Frank. He said, Richard and I want to know what's Gil's best position. I said, well, you've been working with him for six or seven months and you've seen him play. Well, he said, we don't know what his best position is. I said, just play. Uh, he's Libra, he's free, like they say in Europe. You play 4-4-1 and he, he just goes anywhere. I said, if you wanted to waste his talent, you could put him on the wing. Let him play on the left wing, but you'd be wasting his talent. I remember the obviously the goal against Southampton was one of the one of the oh one of the great goals. I think it's the great greatest goal I saw live at Main Road, yeah. and his performance in the three all against Newcastle was probably the best individual performance yeah. I saw at Main yeah. Road as well. And he did bring a lot of colour to that time. And he got a lot of stick that night against Newcastle. There was about four or five who were trying to flatten him, you yeah. know. Yeah, but still, he was a very exciting player yeah. to watch. 
Um, there was a few other Georgians came in during your tenure as well. What, what, what's the story behind the, well, the, the influx we, of them? We saw them play. Uh, they, they drew England in the Euros, and they played England in, in Georgia. I think they drew it there, England, and they beat uh, uh, England beat them two one at Wembley, and both Shellier. Uh, sh- uh, sh- uh, and the other, the sender, what's he called? Um, something. Shkadadze. Shkadadze. Yeah. They both played ter- Alan Shearer and uh, Teddy Sheringham off the park. Right. They really held them and played them well. And I thought, well, they're not expensive, these. And they're a bit, it's a bit like signing people from Scotland. You know, they're tough. Mm. Yeah, the good guys, the tough guys. And they want, you know, they really wanted to do well. And so that's why we signed the two of them. Mm. As, as the centre of the defence. And uh, it, 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 if you were looking for a, an actual performance to underline, if they kept, if they kept Sherry, uh, um, Sheringham and uh, uh, Alan Shearer down to one goal, I think they scored one, one of them uh, that night, they're not bad players. Mm. So how does it come about that you leave? I know you, you, you were saying that you kind of, you've had enough, there was a lot of pressure on you, a lot of pressure on your family. Um, what's the final moment where you think, do you know what, I'm going to get out of here? Well, I, I just thought I have, to, I have to get out because I'm going nowhere because every week there is a crisis one way or another. And if there isn't one, somebody will create one, you know. And it was as though they were just trying to, which they were, they were trying to get me to leave. They were, I was being... Uh, or the board members, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were, they were doing uh, awkward things and putting me in awkward positions and some which were... Not very nice. And I thought, well, I don't need this anymore. So I decided uh, I'll keep my sanity, I'll keep my pride, I'll go out, I'll get out of the game, and I'm done with it. Hmm. Colin Bell was working. He was part time. Part time. He, he was, he, he, Colin used to meet their parents when they came along, and then he'd, he'd say hello to them and everything like that, and he'd bring them to the match on a match day, and I would go and meet him, and Mike, some of you would go and meet him, and everything like that. And, that's, and he was doing a a bit of coaching with him, uh, and that was that was about it, really. And he left during your time, and he feels a little bit bitter about that. Is the is there anything is there anything to his Colin complaints? feels bitter about it because he had to have some excuse for why he, he was asked to leave. I didn't ask him to leave; it was none of my doing. I stepped down from the board that day and then put the, char- the chair in charge of uh, David Bernstein. I said, "I can't sit here." And uh, uh, I hear a, f- a teammate of mine, a friend of mine, somebody we've done so many things together, criticised. I said, I must leave and I'll come back and I'll uphold whatever decision you come to. So I left the board. I came back 10 minutes later. Frank Clark was there. Alan Hill was there. And he said that we've decided, David Bernstein said, we've decided to get rid of all the staff at uh, Platt Lane. And uh, I said, what about Colin? He said, and, and him as well. I said, well, look, this is a very de- delicate situation. I'm going to Jersey to see the Jersey Football Club, uh, sorry, Fan Club, because we, it, was the, it was the international matches the following week, so we got a week off. And I said, leave the, the, the actual message that what we will we'll, we'll pass to Colin. I will do it, and I'll have a think while I'm away what we can do and how we can find him another position at the club where he'll feel comfortable. And I left that board meeting with those words. And I'm in Jersey on Monday, and somebody rang me up from the Manchester Evening News. Oh, I got, got my number. 
and told me that Cohen had been sacked. I couldn't believe it. So there's obviously been a misunderstanding there on his part. On whose part? Collins, because he, he seems oh, to... Oh, it's a great misunderstanding yeah. on his part, but there shouldn't be, it should not have been a misunderstanding from David Bernstein or Alan Hill, because Alan Hill said, I sacked him. I said, well, you'd no right to. He said, well, I was told to. It strikes me that your time as chairman on the field, results didn't go well. Revenue increased massively. The club became more commercially savvy because they never were before, and even I recognised that as a, as a youngster. You know, the, the club shop expanded, and we, we, we seem to be doing more in those areas. Well, what we did, we took, we took, we took the social club, uh, uh, we asked Greenholz to let us have it and turn it into a shop uh, to where we could sell, we could sell uh, replica products. Whereas we had a shed before, which earned the, the club £60,000 a year, would you believe, for all the replica shirts sold, the club got £60,000. We moved into the, the, into the <coughs> social club, and it suddenly shot up to the club made a profit of £150,000. Profit, not turnover. Obviously, you agreed the deal to move to the stadium. Yeah, and, and by stadium. that time, Sir Howard Bernstein had come on the scene, you know, it was very, and Richard Lease, they were very, very important because... To actually do the stadium right and make sure everything was done right, you know, there had to be a lot of liaison between us. And what we were trying, what we wanted to do is is turn the stadium car park into a park and ride when the tram system was in to go into the centre of Manchester and back, where you could park your car for maybe five quid a day and pay fifty p. You know, because I was always mindful about the maintenance of the cost of the stadium. You see, at Main Road, the maintenance costs could be 100, 150 grand a year on a good year. But if you've got a new stadium and all of a sudden it wants painting or something like that, you could, could be talking about four or five million, you know, or two million or something like that. You, you don't know what, what you, you know, you're talking about it painting inside out, you know, and I was always mindful of that. There was growth off the field under your watch, wasn't there? City became a more professional. Oh, yeah, and, well, I mean, so when I took over, the, the turnover was about four million, but I tell you, it was about 33 million when I left. And it was rapidly growing, you know, and, and the, great, the great influx of, of, uh, of, Land uh, made available to the club from uh, Manchester City Council, which in return the owners built on it. And it was absolutely a wonderful, wonderful thing for Eastlands. If you look at Eastlands now, if you look at all that side of Manchester, full marks to everybody who's had anything to do with it, and but more full marks to our current owners for what they've done, because nobody, nobody in the world could have done as well as they've done. So this current City team then. <clears throat> Is it better than the ones you played in? Yeah, they've got more better. They've got better players, more more better players than we had. You know, uh, we had players who were not quite as good as some of these. We had players who were as good as some of, uh, of these. Uh, but if you were saying, how many of our team would you put into this team we've got now at present? You'd be struggling to get four, I would think, mm. maybe five. Thank you so much to Francis for inviting me over and for being so open and honest throughout that conversation. If you liked what you heard, make sure you subscribe wherever it is you're doing your listening and we've got plenty more for you. I've been speaking to the key architects of our back-to-back promotion campaigns, Andy Morrison and Joe Royal. One of our finest academy products, Paul Lake. Former star player and then club director, Dennis Stewart. And a man central to our post-2008 success, Brian Marwood. They're all available now, wherever it is you do your podcast listening. And don't forget to check out mancity.com or download the official Man City app for more content such as this. 
Thanks for taking the time to listen and hopefully you'll join me again soon.